Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. That includes our new listeners and uh, old listeners, last-time listeners, I don't know. Um, ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We love to talk about cars, and that's why we're doing this whole podcast thing. Isn't that right, Ben? That is correct. In fact... Ben writes for a number of publications. I'm going to get him to list a couple of them just so that you can see um, and read his latest work. Ben, go for it. You can find my stuff at Car and Driver, at Motor Trend, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, Driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Ben, we've got some cars to talk about today, as usual, and some... Uh, some funny features that we, we saw on the internet that uh, I think warrant a good conversation, a good discussion. Don't you agree? Uh, I'm all about it. All right. Let's start with what I drove recently. And uh, I picked up the Toyota Sienna minivan. And I'm living that van life, man. I love it. What exactly does van life mean to you? Because I feel like you're <laughs> using a term you don't fully understand. <laughs> well, you're right, actually. This is not van life. This is uh, more like uh, parenting life. Um in the fact that I just have a passenger vehicle or a, or a family-friendly vehicle with sliding do- power sliding doors, lots of space, and uh, an entertainment unit in the back. And just so to clarify, he- Sammy does not have children. So when he says no. parenting life, it's what he imagines parenting life might be like. Yeah, I mean, I, have a, I don't have children, but I have a very vivid imagination, um, which catches me kind of like scolding um, my imaginary children in the back. Uh, don't make me turn this the, turn this van around. That's what I do. I do it all the time. Don't Good you job. do this? Am I the only top, one? Top quality dad joke, or I guess pretend dad joke in this context. That's not even a joke. That's I really don't, what I if do. You, are you asking me if I talk to invisible passengers while I'm driving by myself? I would have to say no. Why? <laughs> I I'm I would like to credit my firm grasp on reality, although <laughs> every day that passes makes me question that as well. Exactly. See, you don't know what you're talking about. I drove the new minivan. Um, the Sienna has uh, is an interesting vehicle these days, mainly because it's only available in one uh, with one powertrain, uh, a hybrid powertrain. Uh, you can get it in the U.S. with both uh, front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. I had the all-wheel drive model. It costs um, – it starts at – Let's let's make sure we get the starting price in there. It starts at thirty five thousand dollars okay. for the LE. I really wouldn't recommend that. It's it's lacking. It, it's basic transportation at that point, um, which is probably useful for uh, fam- big families. But the model I had was a little bit more uh, well equipped. It was the Limited. There's also one trim level above that called the Platinum. Now, in addition to having um, the Limited trim package, I had the Entertainment package and all the options that come with it, including a digital rearview mirror, which provides a very uh, awkward view of what's going on behind you. Well, why is it awkward? Well, you know how it is. It just shows you this really straight um, image of what's behind you, and the perspective is always so... Um, it's just not the same as what you would be looking it's at. It's a camera, just, right? It's, it's yeah, it's saying. a camera. And uh, you just see the, the grill of the vehicle behind you when, you're, when you pull up to a red light. Uh, or a stop sign, and it's just, that's all you see. There's no, there's no, that provides you no information except for the make of the vehicle behind you, right? And what's, what's the refresh rate like on that, on that screen? Cause that's what always weirds me out is cause when your eyes are going back and forth between the road and a screen and the road and the screen, th- they're not always the same, whether it's the lighting or the refresh. It, it just, I find it distracting. 
Um, I don't have as much of um, an issue with the refresh rates. I remember when we first started seeing these features in, let's, I think it was the Cadillac XT5 was one of the first vehicles that we drove that had this. I think CT6 it, had it too. Or CT6. I remember back then the, the refresh rate was noticeably um, a little choppy in comparison to the, the real world, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't think it's that bad anymore. But the the angle is really un, is awkward. I don't think it's very useful at all in in many circumstances. That is probably the biggest um, uh, criticism I have of these of these systems. And, and like, they don't you, you can't change the angle either. It's 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 one one size fits all. Yeah, and they're really not that useful when parking the vehicle either. Either now I know you usually have like rear view cameras and surround view cameras to help you with that too, but. Um, I have the habit of of wanting to use my mirrors and and see how I line everything up. I also have to say it is so bizarre um, when you want to look at yourself in the rearview mirror. Sometimes I do that. Hey now, and you have to get out of the car there. and run behind the van. Yeah, while it's running, and it's not- and somehow have like a cell phone system or a, a smartphone inside that transmits the video image to your phone at the back. Yeah, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know. What you, it's it's a bit of a, it's like a Rube Goldberg device for vanity. Um, I didn't mention the the powertrain in, in detail, did I? No. Should I? I think so because I've been waiting this whole time. Really? Yes. Uh, two point five liter four uh two point five liter four cylinder engine paired with a hybrid powertrain or a bunch of electric motors and a little battery. Um, it makes 245 horsepower. It delivers about uh, 35, 36 miles per gallon, according to Toyota. I got better than that, which uh, suggests that I'm already in granny mode while I'm driving these these minivans around. It's it is it the same system that you would find in say the Rav4? I think so. Yeah, they call it the Toyota Hybrid System too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I, it's just funny because like whatever you hear. The, uh, a new Roman numeral after something, it assumes yeah. that like the first version of that was so memorable that of course you'd be like, oh yeah, it's it's, it's two, it's Rocky two, it's it's Star Wars two, it's it's, it's yeah. thing. But Toyota hybrid system, I didn't know there was a Toyota hybrid system one. I didn't know that was what it was called. I knew that I knew there was obviously I we had synergy. Yeah, hybrid like synergy drive, right? That's what we had in the 90s and the 2000s. So I guess at thought. some point that changed, and now we're being made aware of that change only because the sequel is here. Yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll say that the uh, the powertrain is pretty good. It's not super fast. It doesn't feel as responsive um, sometimes, uh, like in motion, than say the V6 engine that's found in the Kia Carnival or the Chrysler Pacifica. But the the, the major trick with this vehicle is all-wheel drive, and uh, excellent fuel efficiency. Now, I one of the reasons why it might not feel as, you know, like you've got the pickup that you want is because the Sienna weighs 4,700 pounds. Jeez, that's really how much it weighs? That's, I didn't even know that. It's 4,600 to 47, and it's, I'm sure the 47 is the model you drove because it would have the all-wheel drive. Yeah, and, um, I mean, imagine how much slower that might feel once you've added some passengers or some um, gear in the in the trunk. You know, that, that'll that'll weigh the car down too, right? Yeah, add two passengers and you're already at a 5,000-pound vehicle. If you put, what, eight people in this vehicle? Is that the max? Yeah, yeah I think if you got the bench seats in the, in the second row, which I didn't. I had pilot seats, which were exceptional. They were very good. So eight um, people is easily 1,000 pounds. 
Yeah. Um, I really liked the second, the second row seats. I had some people in the back, uh, adults in the back who, uh, also found them com- comfortable. They even had those, um, I remember we were really excited when the carnival showed up and it had kind of like, uh, an ottoman or a leg rest. The ottoman. The, this also has a sort of leg rest, um, and that's pretty handy. I just feel like sometimes these features feel, like I feel like they have to power everything, right? You need to have like a little button that you press that slowly raises the, the, the leg rest. And I really wish that sometimes it was like manual and I can just, like a lazy boy, well, just like bam. A barber chair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I guess, you know, that, I, I understand what you're saying. I wonder though, if you look at the, like, these seats are often removable and slideable and stuff. And if you have a big arm on the side of the, the, the rocker yeah. to kind of like kick it back, would that get like, caught on stuff when you're walking in and out? Does that make yeah, it harder to sure, get in? Or, because, I mean, I, it's not practical in any way. If you're, you're 100% right. I, I mean, the electric motors are aren't, a little bit the electric fast. motors are probably heavy too. That's true. Um, and another feature that I found about this car, um, kind of curious that I don't remember in previous tests of it, is I noticed that something that looked like uh, Wi-Fi waves, like uh, etched into the side skirt of the vehicle. Um, and when I put my foot over there, the car started beeping, and then the <laughs> sliding door, <laughs> and then the sliding door automatically opened. I like so, that they actually marked where that's supposed to happen, though, because so many. SUVs these days have like the pass your foot under the back bumper and yeah. one out of every 10 times the hatch will open and you're not sure <laughs> yeah. if you've actually done it or not. And you see, so you keep doing it and it, it triggers it over and over and over. And anyway, I, I, yeah. I like that when it works, but it's at the point now where I don't know whether a vehicle has that feature or not, because it not working is no guarantee that it's not present. <laughs> I think almost every car has that now. Every, every SUV must have this feature. Um, who was it? I think it was GM started putting like a little light puddle or a puddle light where you would put your foot and hopefully that would trigger it. That's also a great idea. I also found that sometimes that doesn't work either. So I don't know if this is just, I've been driving cars that have the feature disabled so people don't do it. Well, you figure that the sensor is, it's in the worst place, right? Because it's going to get dirty, especially in the winter. So I'm assuming. Or damaged, I suppose. Yeah. So I'm assuming that that has a lot to do with whether the system works or not. Um, another feature, another aspect of the Sienna that we need to talk about is the infotainment system. Toyota really, they really got to bring their new infotainment system that we've seen in uh, some of their newer vehicles, like the the Tundra and like the Lexus one. Uh, this needs to start coming to other vehicles as fast as possible because the infotainment systems that they have in their vehicles are dated, ugly, slow, limited in terms of functionality, small. Like there is no I don't think there's a single redeeming f- factor of it other than the fact that it works r- reliably. Like, you know what I mean? I, I've always found that Toyota systems were puzzlingly unattractive in terms of their graphics. Um, yeah. And the thing that weirded me out most about that is graphics are free. It's <laughs> no, but you don't have to pay. Sell me- that to all the graphic designers out there. No, I'm not saying that the, the, the design work is free. What I'm saying is you don't need to have a better screen to have better graphics. You could have you yeah. could have great graphics on a great screen and poor graphics on a great screen. So well, I guess that impacts reaction of the. I mean, if you have if you have a a processor or or you know a chipset that is limited in terms of its its computational power, you can't make things higher resolution or I, know. I mean, if, if we're if we're if we're using chips that can't render attractive images on a screen the size of a hardcover book, then I think there are bigger problems at play in the background of of Toyota's decision making process. 
I guess you're right. Um, the other thing, though, that I really wanted to commend the Toyota for is just the sheer amount of space that you have. And I know that sounds ridiculous. It's a minivan. Look at, look, just look at it. It's gotta be spacious. But beyond that, there is a huge center console storage bin that I found, like, I just wanted to put everything in there. I, I thought it was super spacious. It's very big. Um, it had a closing cover on it as well. Perfect for a bag or from, for some snacks or, or a Fish picnic tank. basket. Yeah, if you want to put your your pet in there, I'm sure that will work out okay. Only if your um, pet is a fish. Don't put your pet in there if it's not a fish, please. And then accessing the trunk, um, if you want to fold down or uh, raise the third row, it can actually be done with one hand with this uh, pretty clever set of like this one lever. They always kind of say like, it's one-handed though, but it's really not because you always forget to put the second row in the, in the right position and it always like <laughs> tilts forward and bangs against it and then you have to get out and go around and move it and come back. At least that happens to me. Yeah, in theory, it's one-handed. Now, I didn't have that problem with this vehicle, but I have had that happen with some three-row SUVs and I wonder if like those always feel a little bit, uh, not just a little bit, much more cramped in the third row uh, compared to a minivan. And I think these minivans really excel with uh, with third row accommodations. I agree. It's night and day. Um, anything else you, you were wondering about this about this minivan? Do, uh, they, do they still make crazy special editions of the Sienna? Oh, because, yeah. Like, of the course. last time we talked about it, it was almost, it was more than two years ago, and I drove the Nightshade Edition. And I don't remember what that means. I think it meant everything was blacked out. Which is typically, you know, if you can't think of a special edition, they just black everything out and, and you get a, a black related or a night related or a, or a shadow related term to, to, for the name. But, uh, can I still get that with the Sienna? There's no more nightshade, but there is something I think that you might find more attractive. It's called the Woodland Edition. <laughs> Whoa, does it come with a pet gopher? No, it's only available in all, with all-wheel drive. Of course. Um, it comes in two metallic paint finishes, as well as a special, uh, a special-looking interior with like this. They call it gray flannel and black embossed softex, like that uh, leatherette material that they have. Okay. I'm looking at it, and it has like beige piping. Okay. And uh, that's the jam. That's the Woodland Edition. <laughs> well, how am I supposed to pull up to the valet stand? Without my blacked out chrome, Sammy. If I agree with you, I think the the nightshade or midnight or d- dusk or whatever deep star black- rising. Yes, of course. Um, these ones really had. Uh, I mean, this, you're right. It's the easiest way to make a special edition that people could pay attention to. They don't do anything other than that, really. But Woodland is not does not have the same curb appeal as a nightshade. For Woodland. Sure. Woodland. So uh, I I don't have anything more to ask you about the Sienna, but I do have some stuff to tell you about a vehicle that you drove recently and I hadn't had a chance to try yet. And okay, talk to me. Hit me with it. That is the Subaru Forester Wilderness Edition. Oh, our good friend, the Subaru Wilderness port, uh, lineup of vehicles. Great. So uh, if you're not familiar with Subaru's Wilderness Initiative, they're kind of trying to make a, an off-road friendly sub-brand. And I know a lot of you are thinking... Wasn't Subaru already off-road friendly with the Outback? Like, wasn't that the whole Outback thing way back when? Yes. The whole Subaru lineup is more uh, is supposed to be more off-road friendly than, say, Honda. Like, yeah, exactly. And uh, they started out with the Outback, making it even more Outbacky. And I think Sammy, you called it like the most Outbacky Outback. 
I think that, I think that's a great definition for it. Uh, what you're getting though with so the, the Forester, I mean, the Forester and the Outbacker are on the same platform, right? So mm-hmm. it, it made sense for the Forester to be next in line, and they gave us pretty much the same package with some notable differences. And it's those differences I think that kind of subtract from the appeal versus the Outback. Um, the, the 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 real the real changes between a standard forester and a and a wilderness forester is that it it gets a little bit of a, a ride height lift. I think it's just over half an inch. It and gets, you, you told me when when I told you this, you said it probably has more to do with the tires than like. Actual. I thought it was the tires, but it turns okay. out it's actually coil springs. Um, the tires though are another difference. I believe they're Yokohama Geolanders. Gotta love those Geolanders. Yeah, so that's kind of one of the, those in the Wild Peaks are like the two go-tos for OEMs who want to add a bit of ruggedness to the Forester. But I have to say, and this is a bit of an aside, the way the Forester sits on the tires with the extra lift makes them look really tiny. It's, (laughs) It's odd. It's yeah. like normally an off-road vehicle, the tires are beefy, and you're like, "Oh, that looks and they rugged." They fill out the wheel. They fill out the wheel well. Yeah, right? here it's not so much. It's it's and it's accentuated by the fact that all of these wilderness vehicles come with like huge amounts of black cladding plastic, and yeah. on top of the wheel well, you have like this two or three, maybe even four inches of additional blackness. So you have like black wheel, black tire, black emptiness void of nothingness, and then black uh, cladding. And all of that together really shrinks the size of the wheel uh, to the to my eye anyway. Um, but those those are the two main things that you get with the wilderness. You also get some unique colors, some gold piping inside and out. Um, mechanically, okay. yeah, this is. So, where... I mean, that's the biggest that's the biggest concern. Because mechanically, I think is where people look. You can look at a Subaru uh, Forester, and you can probably tell from the get go this can be pretty rugged. What they did is they made it more more of that they took their design language to the next level and Subaru's design language is already kind of limited right yes so So, the most important thing then is how does this thing feel I mean like what are the mechanical changes that they made and and that's where the that's where the weakness comes in as opposed to the Outback now the Outback wilderness comes with the turbocharged engine correct yeah so it's it's already a it already feels like a more responsive tough vehicle the the Forester for reasons I don't understand is restricted to a single four-cylinder engine. Um, okay. It's you. You can't even get you can't get the turbo that comes with the Outback in any version of the vehicle. Instead, you get a, a an engine that's two and a half liters, gives you 182 horsepower and 176 pound feet of torque. It's not great. Those are um, mainstream numbers. Like the, that's all it is, right? Yeah. So what toy what what Subaru did to try and keep up with the rest of the pack is they messed around with the CVT. Oh, yeah. That's always a good a recipe for success, right? <laughs> so the continuously variable transmission that is standard across all Foresters in the wilderness goes from 3.7 to 1 gearing to 4.11 to 1 gearing. That's the final drive ratio. It all also, right. Now, now, say, now, now explain that in a, in a manner that matters to people. So when you go up in terms of a gear ratio like that, it's more aggressive in the sense that there's more mechanical advantage. So in theory, you'll accelerate more quickly. And in fact, the this version of the Forester is probably the quickest that's out there. And it it's as quick as, say, a RAV4 TRD off-road and a Bronco Sport. Like, it's it's in Come that on. same... You really think this, this thing is as fast as a... Numerically, as, it is. I, I actually as looked other it up. Forester, uh, as other Foresters? It's faster than any other Forester. Even uh, with those tires? Yeah, it's because Weird. you have... Not only did they... Uh, make a more aggressive 
final drive ratio, but it has eight virtual gears instead of seven. I think all the other ones have seven. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the exception of the Sport, I think, also has eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it has a first gear that's designed to be just more torquey off the line. So they, they strengthened the internals of the CVT. They made it more aggressive. And that's that was their way of trying to overcome the fact that the four-cylinder is kind of uninspiring. And the other mechanical change, I don't know if this is really mechanical or more of a software change, but you get some more drive modes for X mode. It has like a snow and mud mode and a, and a snow and dirt mode. But it's funny because the second snow mode is for deep snow, and on the, the label it says D-snow, like D-dot-snow. <laughs> they didn't have enough room for me. Um, um, I love that. I think that's the funniest thing is that both of them say snow on them and you're like, <laughs> oh no, what do I do? And then what, like, the, is there a measurement? Should we go, should we like open the door and like put our foot in the snow and be like, yeah, that's deep. Remember like, that, that Lincoln has a, as setting for the uh, aviator and the navigator that, that says <laughs> deep conditions. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Which deep is by condition. far, by far my favorite drive mode of any drive mode I've ever encountered <laughs> because it's not specific to snow, right? No. Um, there's one more, one more, one more thing about the wilderness. <laughs> those, those big black bumpers on the front and the back, they're actually different than stock and they translate into better approach and departure angles. I think it's like three degrees averaged out to, but I know the front approach angle is like 23 and a half degrees versus 20 for the standard forester. So they've sliced a bit of angle off there so that you can, in theory, climb over stuff you're probably never going to try to climb over. And here, here is the whole thing about the wilderness. Yeah. There's two problems I have with this vehicle. Climbing Three. stuff. <laughs> Climbing stuff. Um, the first one is who's buying this vehicle exactly? Because oh yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know who's buying this thing. You're if, right. If you're an off-road enthusiast, you know the limitations that this vehicle has, right? <laughs> you're probably looking at it. it's not cheap, eh? It's no. if you want the wilderness, it's based on the premium trim, but the premium trim costs let me see if i can find the number here um i want to say it's like thirty-eight thousand dollars or something that seems too high why can i not find this number the the premium trim has okay so the 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 wilderness i was wrong it was tw- it's about 28 or twenty-nine thousand for the premium the yep. wilderness is 33 520 so okay. you're paying like five four 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 and a half thousand dollars more mm-hmm. for a vehicle that essentially amounts to a different final drive ratio, more aggressive tires, and a small lift. Now, of that stuff, you could do all of that in the aftermarket. So yeah. when I look at a regular Forester Premium, what if I just bought that and put on even better tires and then took that off-roading? You know what I mean? Like, It yeah. seems like if you were kind of a DIY off-roader yourself, this package might not make sense to you. But if you like how the wilderness looks then this is kind of, I think, with who this is aimed at. It's people who want the very out-there looks. I mean, it's the most aggressively styled Forester in the, in the, in the lineup. Okay, um, maybe. maybe. I, I still think there's a, that orange-trimmed sport model, right? Like, that's... Yeah, but this has different bumpers. It has the black yeah. hood. It has the gold stuff on it. I mean, it's this, pretty... This vehicle also has like a pretty significant drawback, though, in terms of fuel efficiency. Well, that's what I was. That's my second point. But just you, you change that final drive ratio, add those tires, and you're you're messing with it. Yeah, I want to I want to finish this just talking about who I think the market oh, is okay. for before moving yeah. on to that. But I think that uh, no one is the the thing about soft rotors that are going a little bit hardcore is it really just means 
you're going to get stuck even farther away from home than you would have normally because <laughs> you're going to try to do something with it that it's not capable of doing. And at that point, you're going to be so far down the trail that you might get yourself into trouble you can't get out of. So I, the limited appeal of these soft rotor, hardcore soft rotors, whatever you want to call them, I think they're more of a lifestyle play for people who want to go camping in maybe a somewhat more remote area and they mm-hmm. want to look rugged while they're doing it. That's kind of who I think wants the wilderness. But to your point about fuel mileage, Sammy, this vehicle is five miles per gallon worse on the highway than any other Forester in the lineup. So $5,000 more expensive, five five miles per gallon worse. Yeah, it gets 25 city and 28 highway. And oh, that's awful. And considering how good the regular Outback is, for an all-wheel drive um, crossover, that's a big deal. It's nearly 20%. Yeah. Um. I think that Subaru is kind of in a real pickle with this engine setup. They, they, they're married to these boxer engines. They're married to their CVT because without the CVT, there's no way they can match fuel economy that they need uh, mm-hmm. to, to be competitive. But when it comes time to build a special model, they end up messing with the CVT. And the CVT is it's there specifically to create fuel mileage. So if you change anything about that, you're really going to be paying the price. And that's what's happening here. Wild. Um it's it's difficult for me to look at this Forester Wilderness and say, buy it. Like definitively pick that one. Um, I, I don't agree. know. You need to have you need to have the mindset. You need to be. It's and it's also really difficult. Like as you mentioned, to put yourself in the mindset of a buyer who would be really excited about this vehicle. Yeah. Is it cool? Yeah, kind of. But the Forester isn't a particularly um, sexy vehicle with a ton of curb appeal, right? Like, no, it's it's strange because you know the Outback version of this. Gives you the extra performance of the turbo engine, and mm-hmm. it's they, it's kind of like they they made something really special. I don't I don't That's think cool. it's a, I don't think it's amazing, but I no, do. But think... I mean, the, the Outback when we saw Outbacks, the way people modified Outbacks before this generation, they would do what the Wilderness is right? for sure. And the Forester, it almost feels like Subaru's decided to hobble it <laughs> because they want to <laughs> sell more Outbacks. I just, I don't, I can't think of any other reason why that turbo motor isn't available in the Forester and certainly not available in a special model like the Wilderness. I think they're going to do another, another version of this. I thought the Crosstrek was going to get this, but instead it got a version called the Outdoor, I think. Yeah, something like does, that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought they were going to get this setup, the, the extra, uh, ground clearance, the Geolanders, and if they put they let you use the 2.5 on the on the cross on the cross track. That'd be a good setup, right? Like that'd be kind of cool. Sure. But there's something about the Forester's application of this um, of this package that really falls a little bit short um, in in the overall. And it's going up against you know Bronco Sports, which are styled to look more retro and funky, and the Toyota TRD, which has the name appeal of TRD Off-Road, which is an established quantity. Everyone knows what that means if you're into trucks or SUVs at all. So Subaru is kind of building out from ground zero with Wilderness, and I would think that when they did, when you're doing that, you want to put your best foot forward, and it makes sense. They did that with the Outback, for sure, and with the Forester, it feels like 75% there. Mm. So I... It, the Forester itself, it, it's super roomy, it's comfortable, it's reasonably it's got a, priced. Yeah, it's got a nice interior as well. It doesn't feel like that flimsy. I mean, yeah. every I feel like every Subaru comes with some rattles. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's just, it's really let down by its drivetrain, and they had the opportunity to fix that, and it didn't happen. So that's that's kind of how I feel about the the, uh, the Forester here. Is, like, 
you can't do anything about it, right? No. And you said maybe you would consider getting a limited and going to the aftermarket, but not, not a limited, but a premium. I think the limited premium, is the sorry. top top tier. I'm not sure exactly what the top trim and level is called, but I swear Subaru does this thing to Canadians and Americans where they switch the premium, the limited, the space, the, the it's entirely of, possible. I think they do. This. I think okay. the premium has like all the interior features of the wilderness, but the wilderness adds like it has a special covering for the seats that's supposed to be water resistant. And then you get like the extra badging and the gold piping kind of deal. So let me talk to you about this water resistance thing. Does is it real? I mean, I don't know. I'm not like, so it's a good question, but I think people have to realize that as journalists, our ability to abuse these vehicles is not something that we take advantage of. So I, I have to give this vehicle back after a week and it has to be in good shape. So I try not to spill stuff on the inside of the vehicle, but I can tell you that there've been, there have been times where, especially with convertibles, where they, things have gotten wet inside just because you're driving through a rainstorm that catches you by surprise or you park somewhere and forget to put the top up. I've also had a couple press cars with the windows down uh, and get caught that way. I've never had water damage. Um, okay. Most interiors seem to be pretty water resistant these days. I don't know what kind of hardcore wetness you'd have to introduce to the wilderness world in order to benefit from what it has. But maybe it means it's not going to get stained and stuff is not going to get ground into it. I don't know. Okay. Well, I mean, I wanted to know because, you know, I hear these stories about people being able to like hose out a vehicle. And I don't I don't believe that. I'm too scared to do that. Like even <laughs> Is that insane? Is that real? Even my Jeep, which is like super basic, <laughs> I would be really afraid to hose anything out. I feel like that's like you're two steps away from an electrical fire. <laughs> but but I will say this. What about a spray bottle? Like what is spray? I mean, that's a very like- I mean, you'd use a spray bottle on, like, a disobedient animal. You would yeah, use a exactly. hose. <laughs> like, my Jeep had the this, – there's these drains that go down the front fenders from the cowl, and they were they were clogged at the bottom. And I tried to clean them out with a shop vac, and I didn't do a very good job. And what ended up happening is the water would back up, and then it would go – every time it rained, I would have, like, wet floorboards in the front, which is terrible for, yeah. for like – uh, rust, for example, but the um, the kick panels at the front of the vehicle are made of straight up cardboard, so they were absolutely ruined. They were just essentially you pulled them out and they flaked away into nothingness because they've been wet and dry and wet and dry for thirty years. I think that we've moved on from that technology. I feel like cardboard is used less in modern vehicles, so I'm not super worried. Um, let's keep do, let's keep this conversation going. Um, I wanted to tell you about um, a feature story that I read on TheVerge.com, which is a tech-oriented, tech and culture-oriented website. I really uh, am a fan of The Verge. Um, and they had an interview with the Mercedes-Benz CEO. His name is Ola uh, Kalanius. I think that's the best way to say it. Um, and they had an interview with him, and they wanted to talk about a, a variety of subjects that's, that's you know important to both the tech and automotive world. But somewhere down this interview, um, I, I started thinking that it would be a really good conversation topic for you and me, Ben. What do you think? I read the same interview after you sent me the link. And there's a couple thank things. You for, thank you for participating in the things that I find interesting. <laughs> well, I, I, there, were, there are a few things in this piece that really caught my eye. I, I wanted to start out by saying we're going to provide a link to it in the show notes. But what I really wanted to kind of point out first is I want you – to imagine um, out there 
All those things you saw in the 80s and 90s that car companies or even other tech companies would talk about happening in the future and those things that never happened and how we look back and laugh at that now. But in the moment, they were super earnest about it, right? Like touchscreens, for example, touchscreens have been around since the 80s, the early 80s. Uh, GM had a whole bunch of touchscreen stuff going on and they eventually got rid of it because they didn't really find the technology to be that helpful. But when we look at tech Car companies talking about technology now, I feel like we have to adopt that same skeptical perspective because otherwise you just end up buying into all of this marketing. Yeah. Um, this is a, a really good, you know, that's a good starting point for one of the conversation topics that um, Ola had, which is that whenever you buy a vehicle, he says whenever you bought a vehicle, that vehicle was at its um, at its peak in terms of technology. And from then on out, it's just going to be getting older and older. Like it's frozen in time, right? Like whatever's inside of it is whatever's inside of it. You can't change that. Right. And he suggests that now going forward due to um, 5G internet or, you know, the, the you know, computerized nature of these vehicles, that they can add features or upgrade features, um, more likely charge you for things, um, and add additional functionality to the vehicle in the future so that it's not frozen in time anymore. Yeah. Do you so- think that's a real possibility again you're you're the one applying that skepticism from previous um claims in in the automotive industry i'm looking at that and i say that does sound possible but i want to put a bunch uh, you and i have had a bunch of computers has your computer just suddenly gained an extra feature in in that in such a game-changing sense during five years of ownership i think really the only big change for me as a windows user would be you know quicker boot up times uh with with later versus a windows but i kind of want to go down the darker path of what you just described a situation where a vehicle's functionality can be changed on the fly after you've bought it i think really what we need to see in between the lines when someone says something like that is it's it's code for we will sell you features that we have currently locked out or we will put features that you need on a subscription that we will require you to pay for in order to access and that's really kind of the new revenue stream that car companies are looking at this ability to sell subscriptions to features whether that's locking out your heated seats or locking out your navigation um it's it's car companies don't any company doesn't do anything out of the goodness of its heart. It's all about revenue streams. Right. And whenever you see a technology that is being advertised, you have to kind of, in your mind, say, how are they going to use this to get more money out of me? How are they going to sell me things through this technology? And and if I want to use my heated seats for free, does that mean I'm going to have to watch an Amazon ad every time I turn on my car? I mean, these things sound dystopian, but not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, we, we should know by now that when you do use some of those features in your car, even the ones that we have now, that there is a transference of data um, between a, a supplier and, and, the automo- and the automotive uh, and the automaker. Um, and I think, you know, the automakers are being more bold and transparent about that, but not in the way you expect it. I think they're talking to suppliers in these interviews rather than customers sometimes. Right? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And you know, that brings me to the next thing I wanted to discuss about this uh, interview, where there's a section where the CEO is asked whether they would, th- there's a whole thing where Mercedes is involved with Apple and Apple is trying to put together a full car operating system that would be, I guess, homogenous across multiple products. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an ad where Apple 
they they showed a system that would plug in like a CarPlay like system that would take over the whole dashboard. So you yeah. wouldn't see anything branded from the automaker anymore. You would see the Apple CarPlay system on your on your dash, on your center stack, anywhere there's a screen. And he asked multiple times. He asked the CEO or the, the interviewer asked the CEO. I'm sorry, I didn't didn't Nilay uh, Nilay Patel. Yeah, I didn't mean to assume the interviewer's gender. Um, asked the CEO. Is there a situation where you would allow that to happen? Like, is Mercedes totally cool with Apple saying, "Hey, this is our car now"? You know, yeah. every time there's a there's a phone attached to it, or or even maybe outside the context of a phone. And he answered it in a really unusual way. Yeah, it, it seemed like because Mercedes logo was included in the video that was shown that the interviewer was referring to. And apparently that means they have a partnership. It doesn't necessarily mean all the details have been ironed out, but the CEO said, we'll have to discuss that because our clear goal is to have a Mercedes experiment, sorry, a Mercedes experience throughout the entire vehicle. Sammy, what does that mean in a world where you're farming out software? Our, our car companies, I know the, I know the big fear of car companies is they're just going to become hardware providers and that the, the, the differences yeah, between one okay. car and another, especially as we move into electrical vehicles where a lot of the, um, mechanics of it are much simpler and easier to, like, you, yeah. you could take, you could take an electric motor from one car and put it in another car. It's not a huge stretch in terms of capability. Um, are car companies running the risk of kind of obsoleting themselves if they if they tie into these partnerships? I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer for sure, but I do think you're you're right. I think they're they should be a little bit worried about these um, Googles or Apples trying to take over the dashboard and put their own spin, the, like their own branded spin, on the the cabin. Because you're right, you're just going to be making um, a hardware platform for the software companies to take advantage of. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. To me, we currently have a separate connection between software and hardware, I think, in our cars. We can drive our, our vehicles with everything everything turned off, and, and it operates, right? Um, we don't need to be connected to the Internet for it to work. If that is the case in the future where I need to be attached to it, if I need to have a, an, a Google sign-in or an Apple sign-in just to change my HVAC controls, that seems like a... A problem. It right? seems like it seems like an unnecessary step. It seems like a step backwards. I agree with you there. Uh, the other thing too is once this start, if these partnerships kind of continue along the same ways they've done for smartphone manufacturers, car companies are going to lose their access to the personal data of the drivers because that's going to be sold to whatever conglomerate is providing the software. Yeah. So I think about that too, right? Um, if Currently, like the the automaker, they have full control of the whole the whole vehicle, right? Like they they know what they're selling you, they know what the experience you're getting, um, and they know how to deal with that and serve you uh, in that way. If they farm out this cabin experience to another person, they run the risk of like another company. They run the risk of really losing control there, um, and especially for a for let's say a luxury automaker like Mercedes, that can change the ownership experience significantly, right? Yeah. I mean, we've already seen it in terms of how advanced safety technology went from being something that was really, really special in the terms of either the company like Volvo had to be obsessively focused about safety to give you advanced features, or it came in a, in a high-end luxury car that was extremely expensive. And then in just a few years' time, all the software and sensors that, that revolved around these systems of auto, semi-autonomous driving and automatic braking and all that stuff – 
the, the price dropped through the floor. So you can get it in a base Honda Civic now. And in some, in some cases, it's, it's required. Like if you want to get a good safety rating from the IIHS, you have to have these systems in all of your vehicles. So software is only a few steps away from that kind of thing. And that right. really makes me think about, there's a section in the interview where the interviewer talks about how they've always wanted to buy a 2003 SL55 AMG or SL, an AMG version. Yeah. And, but when they look inside that vehicle now, they see a dashboard with an infotainment system that looks super dated. And they're like, yeah. oh, this is terrible. Like, I, I, you know, it's one of the things that's held, held me back from this otherwise beautiful car. I think about projecting that statement into the present or even the future. And mm-hmm. the idea of a vehicle whose interior is just screens. And then 10 years from now, looking back on that and realizing that there's absolutely no personality or design or style associated with that vehicle when it's not running. Everything is going to be software. If everything is software-based, then you're really removing one more facet of a vehicle's character. Uh, yeah. The, the the weird response from the CEO was talking about how, you know, the original SL has held up for so many years, like the one from the 1955, I believe. But that's because it's timeless, right? And it, But it's timeless in the sense that it is a fully realized object, um, it doesn't rely on anything outside of itself in order to operate. It doesn't need to connect to anything. And mm-hmm. it also, it does everything it says it's going to do based on just basic mechanicals. And its design is entirely present 100% of the time. So okay. if we move into a future where software is taking over a large chunk of a vehicle's personality, then we're going to lose visual personality. We're going to lose uh, the experience of driving the vehicle. It's going to be, it's going to be more malleable. And I think, you know, you start to think about the idea of how over the last couple of years, these software companies have become obsessed with the idea of the metaverse, which is, you know, um, a world that exists only online or in virtual reality and people interact there. And I think often about how unimaginative the metaverse truly is because every depiction I've seen, it's just a way of exporting capitalism into a virtual space and making you pay to own virtual real estate or products that don't exist. It's like, it's like the ultimate end stage capitalism game. And I kind of think when you look at this conversation talking to Mercedes Benz, how this is a company that once made a product that was really timeless. And now they make a product that is essentially something you lease for a short period of time and then move on to the next product. And you, you're more interested in status exactly. of ownership than you are of the product itself. The, the heritage hasn't moved into the, into yeah. the, I realized that was a really long rant. And I'm no, sorry, but I Sammy. think the, the long run is that is that the heritage of the vehicle has not made it to our current, situation our current year right yeah, it is it is it seems like an entirely different business model and one well, that is evolving into something else as well what do you imagine i mean if they were to what would be the complete 180 of what we're seeing it's not like we're going to get mechanic like um analog everything in the cars again right no so will it be projections on like everything's a hud sort of thing i so feel like i feel like if you're honest about this as a car company and you present it for what it is then you have a good chance moving forward of connecting with buyers. But I feel like, you know, Mercedes-Benz is trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say, we're the heritage company that has this long history of being a quote-unquote tech company, which is something else that is in this interview. Oh, Mercedes is run like a tech startup. I don't want to hear that. that. Don't listen to that. It's it's pure BS. Um, If you're trying to conflate... The idea of a software software run tech laden product that is designed to last as long as the lease, 
and generate income during that period with a vehicle that was designed like 70 years ago from an entirely different perspective, that doesn't make sense. Right. Right. Um, we encourage you guys to read this uh, interview. It is a little long. I also think there's an audio ver- version of it, which is also equally fun. Um, and reach out to us. Comment back. Let us know what you think. Uh, we're eager to have that conversation with you. I think the easiest way to get in touch with us is to come on over to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Um, and there's a bunch of contact. There's a contact form at the top of that website. You click on it. You fill it out. lands in our inbox. Additionally, you can email us the old-fashioned way. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com or, Ben, you know what I'm going to say. You can find us on social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's at HuntingBenjamin. Sammy is on the cesspool that is Twitter. That is at Sammy underscore hot, like you're laughing. Um, If you want to subscribe, you can also do that on UnnamedAutomotivePodcast.com. Sammy, did you mention that we are on Amazon, Google, Spotify, uh, Shoutcast? Not Shoutcast. That's that's a Winamp thing. any any kind of podcast uh, catcher that's out there, you're going to find us. If you do find us and you do like us, please just leave a rating or say you like us or leave a comment. That kind of thing helps us reach a larger audience. Um, I didn't say that, but you did, which is great. Um, additionally, if you liked what you heard today, you can find us on Ko-Fi. Give us a little tip on Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast. And uh, Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? I've got myself into the Goodwood Festival of Speed. It's the first time I've ever attended this um, event, and uh, I can't wait to tell you all about it. I've also got my hands on a new Porsche Panamera, which That's... gets a new engine this year. So There you go. I'm going to be talking about the Mazda CX-50, which is kind of trying to do what the wilderness is doing, but also not doing it at the same time. So I'm trying to figure that out. Okay. You're going to want to listen to that, so be sure to subscribe and uh, download next week's episode. I'll talk to you later, Ben. What do you say? Sounds good to me. Bye.